late last year, my wife Julie went to Michael's uh, to have a 70-year-old family portrait framed. It's a painting of my mom as a little girl with her mom and her dad on either side of her. It's old and worn out, lots of water damage, and I brought it home from my ancestral home in 2016 when I went back there for a short visit. The picture had been in my, in my old house all these, all these years, but since my step-aunt started living in our house many years ago, she took the picture down and put, it, put up her own family pictures and put, put the picture away. But I remember the picture when I was there and I asked my aunt where it is and, and she said she, it's, it's here somewhere. So she went looking for it and she found it, uh, this painting, uh, put away, hidden above a tall cabinet upstairs uh, in the same room where I was born, as a matter of fact, rotting away in the moist tropical air. When I was little I used to see this picture uh, hanging on a wall upstairs opposite my mom's piano but I paid no attention to it. Didn't mean to me, uh, to me then, anything to me then. But now that I'm older and then my mom is almost 82 years old, the painting has taken on new meaning. You see this painting is, is symbolic, it's really a doctored up uh, painting. It didn't quite happen the way the pain, painting portrays itself. My grandfather was not there. She had already, my, my grandmother had already remarried. She had been a widow for years and my mom uh, had already grown up. And my grandfather is wearing his khaki uniform before the war, looking smart and happy with his family. In fact, he had been dead several years. He died in a Japanese prisoner of war camp when my mother was only a year old. And this is the only picture we have of my real grandfather. In a way, by having this family portrait framed, I'm also framing my own thoughts and my own sense of identity. For in a larger sense, this is what frames do. They gird and sum up a way of thinking, a reality, seeing things. Just like God's creation has its own sense of reality, and it's, it's framed in its own way. And the sooner we discover this, the wiser we'll be. Uh, but, of course, in this fallen world, we do not simply become wise by, by self-reflection alone or self-discovery. We become wise by having someone reveal and explain to us the thoughts and the actions of God. As 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows the person's thoughts except the Spirit's of that person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And the only way this happens, according to the Bible, is for the Spirit to reshape, that is to reframe our minds to become like the mind of Christ. In this way, we can not only understand the things of God, but we can also be empowered to accept it as our guide for making decisions in our lives. As 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 16 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. But we have the mind of Christ. That is to say, the mind of the Spirit is the mind of Christ. They mirror each other. They're one and the same. 
But the frame of mind of the natural person is not like that. Notice that phrase, the phrase, the phrase, the natural person in verse 14. What is this natural person? Well, to discover it, we need to now spend the rest of our time in, in the book of Romans uh, to explain what this means. Paul gives us two examples of the natural person and the frame of mind that they have. Both have, really have the same problem, the same weakness, which makes their wisdom really dead ends. In order for us to understand just how the Spirit reshapes our mind into the mind of Christ, we need to understand these, the natural person and the frame, their frame of mind. And there's two of them. The first of these is described in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and the second in Romans 7, 7 to 25. Let's go to Romans chapter 1 first. The frame of mind that we find there. Paul describes the frame of mind of many, which really started with a single thought, led, led into this world by this one question we find in Genesis 3. Did God really say? This seed of doubt erupted into open rebellion so that God was deliberately ignored and everything that can be known about him through his creation was intentionally suppressed. The result of this irrational thinking is the distortion of God's image and the distortion of his image in us and our consequent descent into utter chaos. But Paul describes this chilling descent in four steps and, and punctuated by the phrase, God gave them up, which appears three times. The dishonoring of God led to the dishonoring of the body, which then led to dishonor, dishonorable passions, which led to dishonorable acts. Those four. And Paul says that it is the natural consequence of deliberately leaving God out of the picture. The deliberate disregard of God from his own creation does not lead to freedom and wisdom. It leads to bondage. Why? Because, well, creation was never meant to rule itself. No sooner than God is taken out than another God takes his place. And man, left to his own devices, becomes his own God. And you know, he is not that powerful or good to rule himself wisely. Left alone to his own devices, man surrenders his mind to his own evil passions. And his twisted passion rules his mind and body and becomes his new God. And worse, he is completely incapable of getting himself out. This frame of mind is a dead end. It's all folly. Let's read. And as we read, I want you to notice the defeat of the mind, the surrender of the mind to sinful passion in those steps I mentioned. Like two men meeting each other on a road, heading the opposite direction. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice first that man is at the top of his own God replacement list. You notice that God replacement list. That is to say, man never really intended to be rid of God and all other gods there might be. His real intention was to replace God with himself. 
and other lesser things of creation that reflect or cater to his own sinful desires. In other words, all the lesser gods we line up before ourselves are no more than reflections of our passions. In reality then, man ended up replacing God with no other than himself. All the various idols he's lined up before him are reflections of his desires. We continue. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful or dishonorable acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then a long list of dishonorable or shameful acts follows, which we will not read. Let me say in passing, however, that what we see in the verses I just read refer to sexual acts and the condemnation of these acts are no different from the condemnation of other shameful acts or dishonorable acts in verses 29 to 32, which I would encourage you to read on your own. In other words, it shouldn't prejudice us against some, of the, some on this list at the exclusion of the others, others on this list. For let us be clear that in Romans 1 to, 1 to 3, Paul catches all of us in this dragnet of sin, condemning all of us in order to introduce us to God's gift of salvation by grace in Jesus Christ. That is to say, God loves all sinners and wishes to save all of us to the exclusion of no one. Now let me now turn to the second frame of mind, which we will call the religious frame of mind. In Romans 7, there Paul describes a very different situation, but the outcome is just about the same. In this particular situation, Paul describes the anguish and the torment of those who despise, despite having the, the knowledge of God's law, do not experience the righteousness and the peace of God. It describes the life of one before he meets Christ, like Paul before he meets Christ on the Damascus Road. It describes all like him before conversion, but it also can describe, to a lesser degree, believers who are still struggling with this moralistic mind frame of excessive concern for rules and narrow and rigid attitude. Someone who keeps doubling down on the law, whose answer to new uh, situations is more rules until the rules eventually leave them uh, and others around them crushed. The situation described by Paul is the polar opposite of what we find in Psalm 119, uh, 97 to 100. You may recall me uh, saying towards the end of my sermon last Sabbath that seeking wisdom and guidance through God's law is really limited and even harmful if, if done outside the spirit frame mind. Now I know that this statement can be a little bit 
discomforting and makes you perhaps a little queasy. But what I am trying to do is to get us to the point where we actually can, with Psalm 119, exclaim, hey, that this really describes me. I really have no problem here with law and grace and all that. And you might find it interesting that someone in the Old Testament figured out the right mind frame in relation to the law when Paul in the New Testament struggled before he met Christ. How ironic that is. Here's what Psalm 19, 97 to 100 says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. So then, what is the problem with this religious or moralistic mind frame? that Paul describes in Romans 7. Well, it is simply this. The same sinful passion that rules those people in Romans 1 also rules these people in Romans 7. It's all there. The problem is human passion gone mad. It's, and it's, it's not just their problem over there. It's not their just, just their problem over here. It's both it's their problem, both of them. And doubling down on the law in the case of the moralistic mindset, finding innovative ways, new ways of applying the law, you know, into our evolving situation just doesn't cut it. Maybe I need to discover more about the law that I haven't. Maybe my list is short. It needs to be longer. These will actually not help you get rid of sinful desires, which is the real culprit the problem our problem is the pesky and the pernicious passions that keep welling up and the law is incapable of addressing that it's never meant to address that yes the law can be parsed again and again to explain all the different facets of of, of sin uh, and our, our, our desires condemning all our evil desires but you know but you see this way of thinking does not lead to peace there is no wisdom in it. It leads only to despair. It's a, it's a dead end. It leads to folly. In rhetorical flair that borders on the autobiographical, Paul captures our conundrum here. God's law on the one hand and our sinful passion on the other hand. We're caught between a rock and a hard place. Paul describes the person nearly driven mad by his inability to get rid of his sinful desires, his passions, and to have the righteousness and the peace of God. He is arguing with himself. He's saying something like this, you know, this darn law, why does it have to shadow my every move? Why does it have to be such a know-it-all? I wish I hadn't known the law. At least then I would not have known all the things I know now about the bad things about me. But then again, I'd be in the other boat. I'd be in with those people in Romans 1, and that's far worse. I don't want God to hand me over to my passions. That's worse. I don't want that. But what do I do now? Toss the law? No, it's not the law's fault. Anyway, I already know too much about me. It's too late. I already know what's wrong with me. Now, it's, no, it's not the law's fault. It's holy. It's just, it's good. I'm the real problem. It's my desires. And I need help to get myself unstuck. So we pick up Paul in, in chapter 7, verse 13, and onwards to the end of this chapter. Did that which is good, he says, then bring death to me? 
By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become, a, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Bingo! There's the problem. You would, you would expect, of course, that the law is spiritual because God is spiritual. They have, you know, same mindset. And God created it. And it is. And the problem is that there is a disconnect between the mind frame of the law and the mind frame of the moralistic person. There's a disconnect. The, the moralistic person is operating under a mindset the spiritual law knows nothing about. We read on. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not, not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now Paul gets a little confusing here, so what I want to do is to uh, skip the word law after verse 22. I'm going to cross it out on the slides uh, so we can see things a little bit more clearly as we go. It may not be as bad as the autonomous mind would be fine here, but the result is the same. I want you to notice an internal struggle here though, alright? Unlike the autonomous person who's been completely overwhelmed by his or her twisted passion, given up by God, this re religious person, this person has not yet reached that point. Notice that his passion is waging war with his mind. It is trying to gain dominance over his entire life keeping him captive to a miserable existence where the righteousness and the peace and the joy of God are out of reach. So I find it, Paul says, to be a law that when I want or what I want to do right, evil or when lies at, the do at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my body another law waging war against the law of my mind or my mind making me captive to sin that dwells in my body. There it is. Do you see it? Now, on to the second most famous cry, second to Jesus' cry at the cross. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Double down on the law? Kick the law out? Run to the people in Romans chapter 1? No, no, and no. Those that have been left entirely to their passion are perhaps most, most miserable of all. Why go there? So scripture tells us what the answer to our dilemma, to the moralist dilemma is. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then Paul quickly recaps the problem so we don't forget. So he says, so then, let me just remind you, this is the problem. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, that is with my sinful desires, lodged in my body, I serve the law of sin. 
That's the problem. And of course, I'm preaching to the choir. We know that Jesus is the, the only answer, but less known perhaps is just how the Spirit gets us out of this quagmire. How does He reframe our mind is what we want to know, to become the mind of Christ. And how does He inspire us to move beyond our new identity to a new life, a righteous life filled with wisdom? Well, that will be for next Sabbath. We've seen the kind of people described in Romans 1. We've also seen the kind of people described in Romans 7. Come to think of it, we may be describing ourselves in all of this at one point or other in our lives. To some, this may be them years ago. To others, this may be them right now. Maybe you're in Romans 1, hopefully not. Maybe you're in Romans 7. You recall your BC days, your before Christ days, uh, you know how, how life then was and how life could also still be a struggle today? We're all caught in this dragnet of sin together. We're all in it. For Paul says, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short for, of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our sinful desires may still be hanging around to those of us that are already in Christ but it's already defeated. And for all, for, or for as long as the Spirit dwells in us, our sinful desires will never be able to overrun us again. Only the Spirit can make, us, uh, can, can make sure it doesn't happen again. Count on it. Or maybe we should, we, should, we should say, count on Him. Count on the Spirit to transform our minds into the mind of Christ. Let us pray. Dear Father, please transform our minds into the mind of Christ. Let the Spirit, O oh God, continue to dwell in us and continue, O oh God, to help us reorder our, our lives and regain control of our own evil desires. Father God, we want to be more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And we know that it's, this is not possible without the Spirit interfacing with us every moment of each day to transform us into the likeness of your Son. Thank you for the Spirit, and thank you for the new life that he gives to us. Thank you for allowing us through the Spirit to experience your righteousness in its entirety. In Jesus' name, amen.